today, this Memorial Day weekend, um, as Jana said, after another brutal week, especially with what happened in Texas, I thought it would be apropos to spend a little time this morning talking about the concept of heroes. We don't talk about heroes a lot in church. Jesus said, greater love has no, no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Today, we remember that nearly 1.4 million men and women have loved you and I enough with that same kind of love over the history of our, our great nation to lay their, their lives down for, for us. And so we gather this morning, we worship God freely because of their love and their sacrifice. In many ways, in many ways, each of them heroes. Today, it seems to me that this Memorial Day weekend, we are a people more in need of heroes real heroes than ever before. And one of the reasons is, I think as a culture, we've really lost our way and gotten confused about what a hero really is. I read one guy's humorous tweet regarding this confusion this week. He, he wrote that, I once donated a kidney and everybody said I was so selfless and I was a hero. Later that month, I donated three more, and all of a sudden, I'm some kind of psychotic monster, and now the police are involved. <laughs> Think about that one. Somebody else followed up with a tweet underneath it that said, thought I saw my first superhero today. He was sprinting down the street wearing a cape. Turns out he hadn't paid for his haircut. <laughs> Here's what many are concluding about what's happening in our culture today. We have exchanged heroes for celebrities. We were once a people, a society in search of heroes, who, who honored heroes, who longed for heroes. And we wanted to be, we hoped that if given the opportunity, we would be heroic. But now it seems we've turned our search for heroes into the pursuit of celebrities. We want to be them. We love to worship them. There are entire, you know this now, right? There are entire billion-dollar industries based on this switch. Landon Jones was the managing editor of People magazine from 1989 to 1997. He wrote an op-ed piece in the Washington Post entitled, quote, Too Many Celebrities, Not Enough Heroes. I, I, I found this so fascinating. Here, here's a quote. He goes, there was a time when we didn't have to choose when our celebrities and our heroes tended to be one and the same. People became famous for great deeds. Think George Washington, Thomas Edison, Amelia Earhart, Neil Armstrong. But celebrity and heroism went their separate ways some time ago. It's become easier to obtain celebrity status and harder to be a hero. And when celebrity worship goes up against hero worship, the celebrity usually wins. He writes that I witnessed, and at, time, I, at times I enthusiastically abetted the multiple G-force rise of celebrity culture during my 23 years at People. Covering, uh, covers, listen now, covers showcasing bonafide heroes languished on newsstands. But we had to rely on celebrity covers to, to make our circulation goals. There is thriving international marketplaces for, for proliferating celebrities. And this high demand has generated even higher supply, along with kind of a, a, a Gresham's law of fame, just as bad money drives out the good. Celebrities are crowding out the heroes. 
To visualize this phenomenon, go to Google Ngram and plot the yearly count of the word hero and celebrity in books published since 1970. The word hero is on a steady downslope while celebrity is rapidly rising. He concluded with this. He said, I, I used to hear a variation on the most admired question. You know how people does the most admired person of the year? I used to hear a variation on the most admired question when I attended focus groups to find out what people readers were interested in. Quote, what are your heroes, the moderators would ask as they warmed up the groups. But about a decade ago, they stopped asking about heroes. Quote, they can't think of any, one moderator explained to me. Political scientist, social psychologist, and author Walter Truett Anderson put it this way. He said, leaders today are stars, not heroes. Stars are surrounded by crowds. Heroes walk alone. Stars consult focus groups. Heroes consult their conscience. Now, you might be asking at this point, what does any of this have to do with what we've been talking about, this sermon series, and then what happened? That's a great question. I'm going to explain, or at least try. The question that has been underpinning the series has been this, right? Days after Jesus' resurrection, here's what we know. Some of the disciples believed most of them doubted. You could probably have counted the number of true believers on one hand. But only 300 years later, with no books, no Bibles, no radio, no printing press, no TV or internet, in a world where most people were illiterate, they could not read or write, only 300 years later, there were 30 million Christians, and Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire, the, the same empire that had crucified Jesus. How is that possible? Could it happen again? And what was so compelling about the message of Jesus that it literally changed the world? And if you and I knew the whole story and we understood at deep levels that truth, could it still change ours? And so as our guide, we've been using this second investigation that the work of Dr. Luke put forth, this first century physician turned first-rate historian. In his first work, the gospel book by his name, Luke, he set out to write this detailed and orderly report of Jesus' life, death, and ministry. In his second act, if you will, a book in the Bible we actually call Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, Luke again investigates Jesus, but it's a post-resurrection investigation, trying to answer that same question for himself. What happened here? Last week, if you were here, we saw the inauguration of the church, the birthing of what you and I are involved in, this community of curse reversers, empowered by the Spirit of God, and led, just as Jesus said it would be, by Peter, the same Peter that had denied him, is now you know, at, at the center, at the forefront of this movement. And that's where we left off in the story. So you might be asking, and then what happened? Well, let me show you, because it's really amazing. Luke writes that one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now again, something has happened dramatic to these men. Initially, even after the resurrection, right, these guys are holed up in a room behind locked doors for fear of the Romans and for fear of the temple guards. But now, something has changed in power by the Holy Spirit. They're out in the streets proclaiming what they've seen. And chapter 3 begins with an even, even bolder move. Now they're not just proclaiming it on the streets. They wake up, encouraged by the church, just like Janice says our presence does with one another. It encourages us to live. It encourages us to live in radical ways. Living amongst that church, encouraged by that church, 
They decide to take it a step further. They go to the temple. This is, um, if, if you remember, when Jesus' last week on earth, this is how he started his last week on earth. He came riding into Jerusalem that first Palm Sunday, you might remember. And where did Jesus go? He went to the temple. And he started flipping over tables. And that, as you now know, wound up getting him crucified. Yet, now here come Peter and John, men that were hiding a week ago or, or five or six weeks ago. Suddenly, they're walking into the temple, and not only into the temple, at the height of its crowd, at prayer time, at 3 o'clock, when the most people would be there. Luke says when they got there, they got to a gate called Beautiful. I like that. And at this gate called Beautiful, they found a, a man lying there that had been crippled from birth. He was a beggar. His, his friends, the scriptures say, well, the scriptures, Luke says, his friends would pick him up every day and move him to different places, place to place, put him down where crowds were, so that he would be kind of in the way and people would see him. And you know the story, just like you and I do. Some would walk past, right? And, and some might throw him a little bit of change. And so now they're walking in this gate called Beautiful, and here's this crippled beggar. It's been laid there, but he's been laid there by his friends. And Peter and John see him, and, and they don't have any money. And so they tell him, we don't have any money to give you, but we will give you what we can, what we have. And they say to, them, to, to him, in the name of Jesus, be healed. Super interesting story. This is exactly what Jesus did when he came to the temple that day only months ago. He flipped tables and he healed people. Well, as you can imagine, this guy gets up and starts walking. He's been crippled for 40 years, Luke says. As you can imagine, people, everybody in town knows this guy. They've been walking by him for generations, right? Everybody in town knows him. He's on the street corner begging all the time. Now he comes walking into the temple with Peter and John. And so Luke writes, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? I love the questions. Luke always records all these questions. Why does this surprise you? Well, I would guess it's because we know this guy. He's never walked, and now he just came cruising in. What do you mean, why does this surprise us? And then Peter gives them the answer they're kind of fishing for, the, the how did this happen answer, but he gives it to him in a form of question. He goes, why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? In other words, it would be okay to be surprised if we had the ability on our own to heal him. Of course you should be surprised, but we don't heal him on our own authority or based on our own power. We healed him, and he goes on to explain, we healed him in the name of Jesus. And he goes on to explain why that shouldn't surprise them, especially those people. Now, if you could flip tables over with talk, this is about what Peter is about to do. He looks at them and he goes, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our forefathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. And then listen, listen to what he says to them. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disown the holy and righteous one and ask that a murderer be released to you. He recounts to them the story. Some of you know, right? Pilate didn't really want anything to do with this. He, he came out and it was the tradition to release a prisoner. And so he said, who would you rather have released, Jesus or Barabbas? And the crowd all chants, we want Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. What should we do with Jesus? Crucify Jesus. Crucify Jesus. 
And so Peter goes on, he goes, you killed the author of life. Now, I want you to remember that, okay? I need you to tuck that away because we're going to circle back to that term, author. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. And this is over and over the foundation of Peter's faith. What changes these guys and moves them from coward to courage? Where do they get the boldness and the confidence to start wagging their fingers at the same man days before they were terrified of? The foundation of their faith, it wasn't something that they had heard Jesus say. It wasn't something that they had read in the law. It was something that they'd seen with their own eyes. He goes, we're witnesses of this. You killed them, but God raised them from the dead. When you really, this is still true. I'm, t- I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's working in my life, studying this week after week. When you really, really get it settled in your hearts and minds that Jesus suffered for you on your behalf to bring you back to God and that he died a real death in your place but was raised from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead and he is now ruling the universe. When you get that settled like just as a fact and truth in your heart, it will change you. Well, Again, in, in, in this happened to Jesus kind of deja vu moment, Luke writes, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John, just the way they had to Jesus, while they were speaking to the people. And they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. I know I keep beating the horse, but what is their message? It's simple. Jesus who you killed is now alive. We are witnesses of it. He's alive, he's not dead. And I can't help but wonder, guys, if this simple message, if there might be more power in our message to the world today, if that's what our message was, it was very clear to the world. Here's what we believe. Jesus was killed, he suffered for us, and he's alive. Give me a chance to show you why I believe that. See, that's our major. Unfortunately, in the world, we're mostly known for our minors. You know what I mean? Well, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message, what message? Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who who believed grew to about 5,000. You see, this is starting to, to go up and to the right. Their boldness and courage and message, it continues to grow the church. Something is happening in town. And as you can imagine, the authorities don't like it. They thought they had squashed this when they had killed Jesus a few weeks earlier. The next day, the rulers, and again, listen to the the specificity with which Luke records the events, because he's looked into this. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. Annas and Caiaphas. Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the son of Annas. Annas is this famed high priest. He kind of carried that title still ceremonially. Caiaphas was the acting high priest. And Caiaphas, if you remember the Good Friday stories, is the same guy that crucified Jesus. Caiaphas is back. These are the same guys that killed Jesus, and now they're looking at Peter and John. Peter and John know this, 
Heck, if you remember, remember when Peter denies Jesus three times? He's outside of Caiaphas's house. He knows who Caiaphas is. He was scared. To, the, a couple weeks before, he denied Jesus, that he was with Jesus to a schoolgirl outside of Caiaphas's house. They should have been absolutely terrified. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, I like that. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, and we're being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but from whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you. Now, you got to enter the story, right? This is seemingly has written all over it, suicide mission. They go into the temple. They stand before Caiaphas, and they go, you want to know who did this? I'll tell you who did it. The guy you crucified, you, Jesus, he did it because he's alive. In fact, it was so surprising. It was so insane. It was so bold Luke says that when they saw the courage of Peter and John, who should have been terrified, but when they saw the courage of Peter and John, who now, like Jesus, is not willing to bow down before Caiaphas and realize that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they should have been intimidated by the wisdom and the position and the power of this court, but they weren't. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now, I'd encourage you, you can read this story in five minutes. It's such a powerful story. And when you read it, just stop at each line and picture it happening, right? It's an amazing historical account. And when you read it, you're going to see that the, the rulers, according to Luke, wanted to do something more to Peter and John. They wanted to, to just squash them right there, like the bugs that they perceived that they were. But the problem was that the guy that they had healed shows up at the trial, and everybody sees him standing over in the corner. This guy that for 40 years they'd walked past and ignored. Suddenly he's walking around in the room. And, and the crowd is kind of like buzzing, right? The crowd, the crowd is aware of what's happened. And so they don't want, they're a little bit afraid. Remember, the rulers of the temple and the Romans, they don't like crowds. And so they're a little worried about turning a small commotion into a bigger commotion, right? And so they, they say to Peter and John, Luke uses the words, command. They command Peter and John not to do this again. Look, we see the guy over there. We don't know how you did that. Stop it. Don't talk about no more resurrection stuff. No more Jesus stuff. We're going to let you go. Don't do it anymore. Now, right, you would think given the possible outcomes when, when Peter and John were standing there, they would have been like, thank you, Lord. Thank you for getting us out of that. But that's not their reaction. What do they say to Caiaphas and Annas and the others? As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. What we have seen and heard. I can't stop telling you I saw a dead man raised to life. I can't not talk about that. That's the foundation of their faith. It's the same thing that was the, it should be the foundation of ours. An actual historical event. It was the foundation of their faith and it was their message. I would argue it still should be ours. 
Luke says that since the crippled guy was there and the crowd was all fired up, their hands were tied, and so they threatened them some more, and that's what he actually said, and, and he sends them, uh, they send them on their way. And Peter and John go back to the church, right? They go back to this community of curse reversers. And, and they don't go back to a building. They go back to this community of believers that are on this mission together, and they report what had happened at the temple and, and the threats that they're all now under. They kind of go back to them and go, listen, I got to give you guys a heads up. These guys are ticked. Right? They're coming after us. They told us not to do it anymore. And so the whole church begins to pray. This is one of my favorite lines in Scripture. Here's their prayer. Uh, under, you know, this, these are people that were scared to death a few weeks ago. The same Caiaphas and Annas just told him, you better not do it again. Now, Lord, they pray, consider their threats, the threats of Caiaphas and Annas and, and the Sadducees, and enable your servants to... Now notice what they ask God for. Enable your servants to kill our adversaries... Call down curses on their heads. Enable your servants to be divinely protected. I mean, that's what I would have been praying for, operating out of my flesh, right? But that's not what they prayed for. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. That's nuts. That's their prayer. Not for power or protection or safety or even a good outcome. Under threat, they pray for boldness. Can you imagine? And God answers their prayer. In fact, just a short time later, they're arrested again by the same guys, and they're put in jail again. But Luke writes that God miraculously sends an angelic being to set them free from this jail, and the angel gives them an order. I love what the angel says to them. The angel says to them, listen, Go stand in the temple courts, right? Go back to where you were. And tell the people all about this new life. Go tell them about this new life. Don't go back into hiding. Go back to the temple courts. Go back to the seat of power. Go back to where it's most threatening to you and tell all the people about this new life. This life that is available to them. This life without fear. This life eternal, this life with a community of curse reversers that they're free to join and discover a, a new source of living and a power within themselves to tell them about this new life. And they did just that. They go back to the temple again. And now, I mean, the crowds are really gathering, right? I mean, this is like watching a car wreck. You know, people are going to start to gather and go, holy smokes, this is going to be good. And so the people are gathering around. In fact, the, the, the crowds are so big that Luke writes, the guards were intimidated now by the crowd. So the guards go up to Peter and John, and they're like, look, you, you got to show up at your court appearance. We should drag you there, but we're a little intimidated by all these people. So follow us, would you? And Peter and John do. They follow them in. And in front of the same guys as last time, the same guys that had crucified Jesus, they say to Peter and John, look, we told you to stop. We warned you to stop. But you're not listening. And so here comes Peter again, right? He says the same thing to them he said last time. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors, here's their message. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. Whom you killed. Have I mentioned that you killed him? Whom you killed. By hanging him on a cross. 
He goes on, he says, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. Now remember, I I told you earlier that Peter called Jesus the author of life. Now he calls him prince. I want you to remember that too. Author, prince, author, prince, author, prince. We're going to come back to that. Peter says, we are witnesses of these things. I can't stop talking about it. I saw you kill him and I saw him alive. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Just at at the core of their boldness, right, is is what they'd seen. Now, the, the priests have had enough. They thought they had squashed this thing once before, and they're ready to squash it again. Luke writes that when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. It's over. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little bit. Again, the historic detail, this wise man named Gamaliel, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law. He he sends them out. He goes, guys, send them out for a minute. I want to talk to you. This is so cool. He says, listen, don't do this. Don't kill them. That's a bad idea. We're already dealing with the problem of martyrs right now. If you kill them, we're going to have more more martyrs. So let's not do that. In fact, he gives them two examples. You can go back home, Acts Acts chapter 5. You can read this. He goes, I want you to consider carefully what you're thinking about doing. And then he says, guys, do you remember there was recently a guy named Thutis? He appeared claiming to be somebody and about 400 men rallied to him. Guys, do you remember he was killed and all his followers were dispersed and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and he led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Look, 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 look. Just let them go. This will die down. You don't want to make more of it than it is. Right? Those other guys got killed. Their followers eventually gave up. We killed Jesus. These guys will eventually give up. Just let them go and the same thing will happen. But then he gives this just wonderfully haunting and prophetic conclusion. Check out what he says. He goes, therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it'll fail. But if it's from God, you're not going to be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. That's pretty cool. Luke writes, his speech persuaded them, sort of. And so they called the apostles in and had them flogged. And they ordered the men not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Andy Stanley's got a great quote on that verse. He says, uh, in those days when you lived, there weren't background checks readily available. You didn't just go on somebody's, uh, on a website and Google their name or order a background check on them. They did a different kind of background check. They checked your back. And they would look and go, oh, I see. You're a criminal. I see. I see. You're, a, you're a troublemaker. This, this was... This was embarrassing. This, this was, it was meant to be a symbol of shame for the disciples that they would carry with them forever, marked by this. But it wasn't for these guys. Luke concludes, he goes, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing 
because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace. What a powerful word. That's what those marks were supposed to be for them. They had, they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts, back to the temple courts, and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. That is an amazing story. You understand, don't you, that you and I are here this morning because of these men. This is their story, and it's our story. As I said earlier, we, we gather this morning, right? We gather this morning able to freely worship together to do it publicly because of the men and women who have laid down their lives to make a public gathering possible. But the gathering itself, the church, our faith, all of that is only possible because of the boldness and the courage of these early church leaders who too laid down their lives to get the truth of what they'd seen and heard to you. One of the reasons historians have said that Christianity survived where most other religions and movements have faded away, like the ones that Gamaliel talked about. Do you know what the difference was? You know what Gamaliel didn't account for? That Christians in those early centuries willingly laid down their lives for what they had seen and heard. Somebody put it this way, quote, the Christians died the best. They died forgiving their executioners. They died with joy. They died while singing. Nobody died like the Christians. In fact, Tertullian, one of the church fathers, had a saying. It was in Latin, but translated it says this, the blood of Christians is seed. The more you kill us, the more it spreads, the faster we grow. Now, ask yourself, where did these guys get this kind of heroism? Where did it come from? Where do these ignorant fishermen who days only earlier were cowards, how do they become heroes? Remember those two words I told you to tuck away, right? Peter described Jesus in two ways. He, he called him the author of life, and he also called him prince, author and prince. Two different words. But the word there that is translated out of the Greek is actually the same word. It's the word archegos, archegos. Jesus, Peter keeps going, is the archegos. It, it, it's a word only used two other times in, in the scriptures, both of them in the book of Hebrews about Jesus. And there they use different translations for the same word too. Um, you see uh, Hebrews 2.10 where they call Jesus the archegos of their salvation, but it's translated pioneer. Some translations actually use the word captain. And then in chapter 12, they say that Jesus is the author of our faith. But again, some translations call him the pioneer of our faith. One word, archegos, it's translated all different words. Author, prince, pioneer, captain. Well, how could one word get translated so many different ways? Well, the answer, according to a bunch of sources that I looked up this week, is that the word in Greek is too rich to translate into one word. You can't do it. What it really means at its heart is that Jesus is our hero, our champion. Actually, in Greek literature, the word is used more of Hercules than anybody else. Hercules was referred to as archego and savior, and this crowd knew that. One writer put it this way, anyone familiar with the legend of Hercules would never imagine calling him an author or pioneer, certainly not a prince. Those words wouldn't do Hercules justice, nor do I think this weak translation of Archego, though it conveys some element of truth, nor do I, I don't think they're adequate translations of this title when applied to Jesus. 
it would be much better to capitalize on today's understanding of what makes a hero and proclaim Jesus to be our superhero and savior. He is the one who can show us how to make a difference in the world. Peter's writing over and over, you don't understand, Jesus is our hero. He is our champion. We fix our eyes on him. Tim Keller, in his description of Jesus as Archego, says that Peter was appealing to what their culture knew about heroes that our culture has lost with the rise of celebrities. He says that the first thing that they, they understood then that we've forgotten today is that, that heroes follow character and they worry about character more than they do appearance. A hero says, I'm going to do what's right no matter who sees it. But in our celebrity-driven culture, all that matters now is how many people see it. Right? How many views did it get? How many likes did it get? What were the ratings? What are the poll numbers? See, heroes, heroes don't care about what people think. Heroes don't care what might happen to them or how they look while they're doing what's right. When it comes to a hero, character matters more than appearance or applause. We've lost that. Secondly, I love this one. He says, heroes have fidelity to something more than their own hearts. The mark of a hero, and you see this with Jesus, and because Peter's eyes were fixed on him, you see it in Peter. Heroes say, this is the truth, and I'm going to stick to this truth, even though it might hurt me, even though it might kill me. See, today in our culture, right, it's all about following your own heart, finding your own truth. Heroes believe the truth isn't relative. For heroes, there are not, there are not alternative facts. Heroes follow truth, not what's in their hearts. Peter does what he does. He says what he says because he knew the truth. What was the truth he knew? You guys killed him. He's resurrected from the dead. I'm a witness of it. It wasn't his truth, right? It was the truth. If he followed his heart, he would have gone back to the locked room, right? But he's able to stand before Caiaphas and Annas because he knows the truth. Heroes don't follow their hearts. Hero, heroes tell their inner voices to shut up in light of the truth. Keller had a great quote on this. He said, you, you, don't you see that before any act of cowardice, the voice in your head is going to tell you that all truth is relative? There's not absolute truth. That's what makes you a coward. A hero says to his inner voice, shut up. We're doing what's right. Celebrities focus on appearance over character and following their hearts over telling their hearts to step aside. And lastly, heroes are substitutes. Heroes say to others, all that could or should, should, should fall upon you will fall upon me. Heroes say, I'll go first, you stay here. Sinclair Ferguson, in his piece that he wrote, uh, it's titled, Jesus, Our Navy Seal. He writes, think, if you will, of a lone reconnaissance officer who has moved ahead of his platoon, which is in great danger, and he's looking for a way of escape. He, he cuts his way through a jungle, only to discover himself face to face with a gaping ravine. There seems no way forward, but unless he finds one, all is lost. 
He throws a lasso-like rope to the other side of the ravine, and he manages to catch it on a tree on the far side. He then risks everything by clambering across to the other side, hand over hand, inch by nerve-wracking inch. He secures the rope and manages to create a rope bridge, and eventually he leads his whole platoon over the ravine to the safety of the other side. This, he argues, is a better picture of Christ as our archegos. He is the divine reconnaissance offer who has crossed the deep and dangerous ravine between fallen man and holy God. Peter is saying to a, hero, to a culture that, used to, that did understand what heroes are, one that worshipped heroes, but they were all made up. He's telling them there is a real hero, a living one that can make you heroic. Jesus' character was unquestioned. The ones that knew him best, Peter and John and James, his own brother, they all testify to his nature. I mean, what would it take for you to call your brother to testify that your brother is a hero? No one told their inner voice to shut up more than Jesus. Not my will be done, Father, but your will be done. I'm not following my heart today, God. I'm following your truth. And finally, Jesus went first. He lays down his life for others. He died so that you and I might live. But, but it's even more powerful than that. Jesus on the cross, he takes on our weakness so that we might find and live and know his strength. Peter is standing before the same guys that crucified Jesus. And when Jesus stood before those same guys, do you remember what Jesus said when he stood before all of these authorities? Nothing. He stood silently before them. Isaiah, the prophet, had predicted it. He said he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before his shears, he didn't open his mouth. Now, Jesus had all of the power in the world. He could have called down a thousand angels to stop it, but he didn't. Jesus, church, understand, Jesus never leverages his power for his own sake, but he always does it for the sake of others. That's what heroes do. That's what Jesus did. And that's our story. That's your story. That's why we're here this morning. Because of Jesus, our archegos, our hero. You see, we gather this Memorial Day, we gather in the open, in public, because of the freedoms that 1.4 million men and women, those heroes who laid down their lives, won for us. And with gratitude for them and with our eyes fixed squarely on Jesus, our archegos, this Memorial Day, can I just encourage you to be different in a world full of celebrities? Do you know what the church needs? The church needs a couple of heroes. And if we could find them, some men and women who value character over appearance, who are committed to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus and following him more than the voice in their heads and chasing after their hearts and who are willing to love others with a cost. If the church could find a few heroes, then it could probably change the world again. The world is still looking for heroes. Go and be them. Let's stand and close in song.